Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Jason Wright Show's best Friday ever. All right, so this is going to be kind of like a, a blended series episode, and here's what I mean by that. So I want to start doing these episodes where it's right on my name and, and pick a particular topic. So today it's going to be right on the San Francisco reparations that they're trying to push. And don't worry, this isn't going to get political per se. I mean, people will probably try to make it political and I'll probably get a lot of hate mail and uh, bad tweets as a result of even discussing this because, you know, I'm white, I'm male, I'm straight. I'm not supposed to have conversations about anything that have to do with um, people that are of color. But I think that when it comes to something like this, there is an element of something beyond just the actual political aspect of it I, that I don't think anyone is even talking about. At least I haven't heard uh, yet. And so, first of all, what I want to do is just play you uh, a news report to describe to you exactly what's going on in San Francisco and what this proposed uh, reparations, what this is going to look like. So here is the news report describing what's going on. Let's go. Supervisors are right now considering a reparations proposal that includes a $5 million lump sum payment for each eligible black person. San Francisco could become the first major U.S. city to fund reparations as that idea gains traction now across the country. Critics say reparations are flawed and financially unfeasible. Reparations advocates say the harms of slavery have continued since its official end in 1865. Before today's meeting, supporters held a rally to talk about why reparations are needed. So what I don't hear anyone talking about, though, is the downside to someone receiving overnight a large sum of money. I mean, what we're talking about in San Francisco is $5 million going to someone all at once. And that, but no one's saying, okay, so what do you do with that? And so what I started doing, and, and that's what I, when I started looking at this, now, the, all the political chatter is going to be about the fairness of it, about, you know, first of all, California was not a slaveholding state. That's one of the biggest arguments for this is that you're giving, um, you're giving reparations in a state and in a city in particular where the black demographic is incredibly low. It was not a slaveholding state. And then there come, opens up all these other questions of, you know, who actually gets it? How are you eligible? Well, I wanted to just kind of give you a little bit of the details of this so that you'd understand exactly what we're talking about. And just kind of as a preview, as a precursor for, for those of you, again, that might be a little bit nervous about even talking about this, then um, let me just kind of uh, give you the, my take on this is, are we doing more harm than good? Okay. And I just want to like, open this up as a kind of a conversation about what does money mean? Is money always a good thing? And is more money always a good thing? Is money going to really cure the problem? Are we focusing on the right thing? So from a policy standpoint, that's for politicians and pundits to, to go over at an infinitum and they will do that and they will fight it out. The constitutionality of it, all this. And, and, and people will, make, you know, they, they will get their clickbait out of this story. They will let their side be known for, for reasons that have nothing to do with what I think is the most important, which is there is a problem amongst a community of people in America, and we're trying to right this wrong. We're trying to correct something, but is the cure going to do more harm than the disease? That's my question. So here is what the San Francisco plan is proposing. San Francisco's proposed reparations plan, which would give $5 million to each eligible black person, will be publicly discussed. Okay. 
Here are the details. To be eligible for reparations, a person would need to be at least 18 years old and have identified as black or African-American on public documents for at least 10 years. So I think that's kind of, again, this is going to get a lot of play because what they knew is that we live in 2023. We're kind of in a postmodern era where we're told that you and I can wake up and, and within just... If we feel that we identify as something other than we are, then we are that thing and we're to be treated that that way legally. And so, therefore, you can imagine a circumstance where someone like a Rachel Dolezal, who uh, presented herself as an African-American for years and years and years before it was found out that she wasn't, she was just a just a plain old white girl, uh, then someone like that could step forward and say, hey, I identify as black. Well, this has kind of set the parameters, and it's pre-woke. I mean, 10 years ago, you know, the whole idea of gender fluidity and how you identify and gender just being a total uh, social construct and all that, and then also identifying as different races, which I guess will probably be the next wave. I don't know how that's going to work out because, as you've seen probably in the news, you can identify you can change your sex, but it doesn't also, but it doesn't really apply to. I'm not saying that I agree with this, or not. I'm just saying this is kind of what we're seeing play out right now is that if I'm a guy, I can identify as a woman and should be treated legally and socially and culturally as a woman, no matter what, no questions asked. But <clears throat> if someone like me, a white guy, all of a sudden decided that I was identifying as uh, Hispanic or black, then I probably would not get away with that as, as easily. So what they're trying to do is remedy this, this issue that they, they know is going to come when they try to put this in place. There may also need to, they may also need to prove they were born in San Francisco between 1940 and 1996 and lived in the city for at least 13 years and were displaced or a descendant of someone displaced from the city by urban renewal. State of play. The city is trying to make amends for previous actions that ultimately led to a lack of opportunities and displacement of a portion of the city's black population. San Francisco's urban renewal of the 1960s and 70s, for example, decimated the black population in San Francisco's Fillmore District, an area once known as the Harlem of the West due to its bustling jazz scene. The city's redevelopment of the Fillmore shuttered 883 businesses, displaced 4,729 households, and damaged the lives of nearly 20,000 people, according to the Reparations Committee. Now, I want to say something really quick. If you've you've never heard of Robert Moses, Robert Moses was a very infamous city planner in New York City. As a matter of fact, if you look across the New York City landscape, especially in Manhattan, and, well, I mean, just the entire, all the five boroughs, a lot of the infrastructure you see, the Brooklyn Bridge, the uh, the, the Van Wick Expressway, the uh, Long Island Expressway, all of these different, um, the, I think it's the Battery Park Expressway, the, these, the Triborough Bridge, all these things, they were built and developed by a man named Robert Moses, who himself was accused of racism and displacing black people in particular and making thing, making public spaces much more difficult for them to use. And it was, it was kind of like he was accused of building New York as a place for, for white people and, for, and all he focused on was making white lives easier. And so, but in, in doing so, I'm actually, I'm right now reading a, a chapter in the book, The Power Broker, about Robert Moses and what he did. It's a great book. Um, Robert Caro is the, I mean, it's, look, it's a, it's a doorstopper book. I mean, it's, the thing weighs probably five pounds, so it's going to take a while to get through. But 
I'm reading right now where he decided that he wanted to run an expressway through uh, the Tremont neighborhood, which had, I want to say, it was going to displace... I mean, it was, it's a it's a pretty magnificent number. I want to say it was over 5,000 residents and it might have been way more than that. But they were they were white, they were black, they were it didn't matter. And so that what they're what they're using here is as a in San Francisco, if this becomes precedent, then are you going to then take that to New York and start looking at some of what Robert Moses did back in the day? in shaping New York and apply it equally to the Italians, the Irish, the, uh, the, the Hispanics, the, the Latinos, you know, like, cause there's a, there's a big Puerto Rican population. Uh, are you going to go back and apply these standards in New York and every other city in which through eminent domain and through gentrification and through public works that there was taking, I mean, it's just going to open up this whole crazy can of worms. So anyway, Black people made up 13.4% of the city's population in 1970, according to the U.S. Census data. That has dropped to just 5.7%, according to 2021 Census population estimates. San Francisco Supervisor Sh- uh, Shaman, I'm sorry, uh, Shaman, if I'm, I'm pronouncing that name wrong, Shaman Walton in 2020 wrote, uh, wrote the since unanimously approved legislation to establish the African American uh, Reparations Advisory Committee. The committee released a draft plan in, in December that recommended a number of reparations, including a one-time $5 million payment to eligible black individuals and payroll and property tax exemptions for black business owners. So $5 million. You're black. You've been in, you've identified as black for over 10 years. You've, you've met the standards. You've met the checklist. Here is 5 million bucks and you're going to be tax exempt. And I think there's also some more to this about the uh, property ownership. It also recommended the creation of a mandatory curriculum that centers black history and culture in the school district and more. Okay. I want, I want to come back to this. Okay. Remember this part. It also recommended the criterion or the creation, excuse me, of a mandatory curriculum that centers black history and culture in the school district and more. To determine the $5 million figure, the committee looked at factors like income disparity, the wealth gap, and specific incidences where black folks in San Francisco were legislated out of opportunity. Uh, Tinish Hollins, I hope I'm pronouncing that first name right, Tinish Hollins, the committee's vice chair, told Axios, there's no way to quantify the harm done to black Americans, she said, but added the amount the committee is proposing is not unreasonable. If approved, it's unclear where the money would come from, but some supervisors have suggested decreasing the police budget or using, so, wow. So if approved, it's unclear where the money would come from, but some have said that we should, uh, but, uh, dang it, I lost my place there. But some supervisors suggested decreasing the public budget, the police budget, excuse me, or using revenue from the cannabis business tax to fund reparations. So we're talking about now, lowering the police budget and using some of that to give these reparations, these big payouts. Uh, So it goes into uh, details on why there's, why there's problems with the budgeting aspect of it and everything. But here is something that I found interesting. And this is where my mind immediately went. Okay. It was, well, just in full transparency, the first thing I thought was, well, this just isn't fair. Bottom line, it's not fair, but who cares about that? I, I'm not worried about that. Look, 
I think I, I hope that you're someone listening to this that you, you that you're able to hear a story like this and go fair or not life is pretty good I'm not going to get caught up in what is fair to one and what's not to me just I'm going to take care of me and my family according to the best of my abilities and my rules so the fairness aspect that came in is like yeah it sounds kind of that doesn't sound really fair but now let's look at this is is this going to actually cure the problem because that's where I really that's where my heart and my mind really is is how do you ultimately help people generationally there's a great book that I read years ago whenever I was forming or I was helping to uh, form and found a nonprofit here in Tyler focused on life transformation it was it was originally the East Texas Cornerstone Assistance Network and then it became the Hand Up Network and the idea with the Hand Up Network is life transformation it's not a food bank it is not a clothes closed pantry where you give emergency need those are absolutely needed those are great charities um, and the Salvation Army and places like that do amazing things here in Tyler Texas where I sit you can get a free hot meal three times a day seven days a week somewhere it, it's you so there are some great unbelievable organizations making sure that people have the clothes that they need on their back. They, there's work programs, there's education. But what we wanted to do was create something that was more focused on life transformation. If you're in an emergency situation, okay, that's cool. Come in. We want to help you, but we want to do our best to make sure that you never get there again. And so as part of it, a book that was recommended to us by a gentleman named Mike Doyle, who is over in South Richland Hills, Texas, who created the original Cornerstone Assistance Network, has done amazing work with the homeless and 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 the, the needy throughout Texas. And then he actually, he advised the Obama administration, just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And he recommended that we all read this book, Toxic Charity. And one of the things you learn really quickly in Toxic Charity is that best intentions can cause some of the worst harm. For example, the book outlines all the money that we've sent to Africa over the years to the tune of, I want to say it was, it was over a trillion, it was multi-trillions of dollars, and yet the improvement to the lives of the people in those countries has not, it has not changed that much at all. It talked about the psychological impact that this does on families. One of the descriptions the author makes is like whenever he was writing the book, or it was before he wrote the book, he and his wife decided, look, if we really want to help the communities that we're trying to serve, we need to live amongst the folks that we really want to help. We want to be a part of their community. We want to learn them. We want to get entrenched and be a part of their neighborhoods and their culture. And so they actually moved into an inner city neighborhood. And on Christmas morning, the, the author describes that they were sitting there and he was visiting with one of his neighboring families, which was a black family. He's a white guy that wrote the book and he's visiting with this black family. And all of a sudden, this van pulls up outside and all the kids go running to the window. They're all excited. And the father of this household, the, the black father, when the van pulls up, he just kind of eases out the back door. Why was that? Well, it was Christmas morning and the van was a group of white people coming from the quote unquote better side of the tracks to deliver gifts to the children. The children were excited. It was Christmas morning. They were getting gifts. But the father had, had been completely emasculated. They were doing, these, these well-intended people, trying to help a family in need. They were doing something for this man's children that he was not able to do himself. And it emasculated him. And the author said that just really stuck with him. And so 
being a part of organizations like this and, and understanding the toxicity of charity and just good intentions, I've looked at this at a deeper level to try to figure out what works and what doesn't. You know, we can't just have this kind of, you know, well, it's really easy to say, give a man a fish and feed him for a day, teach him to fish and feed him for a lifetime, but then you're just going to walk away or are you going to actually stick to that idea and go, okay, now I believe in that. So here, let me take my time and energy to teach you to fish. Well, I think what we're doing is we're causing more harm than good. And here is what always happens. First, you have appreciation. There will be a brief sugar high from this. If this were to happen, I don't think it will because there's just, again, there's too many legal issues, too, too much constitutional, too many constitutional issues. Again, that's for, that's for policymakers and politicians to work out. I'm talking about does this form of charity or kind of making amends and always being so obsessed on this idea that money solves everything, is that going to be the fix in this case? And my my answer is most likely not because what happens is you always start out with first you have appreciation, then you have expectation, and then after the expectation comes anger. That's where everything breaks down. That's why it's so difficult. And that's why I would suggest to you, if you ever have a family member that comes to you and says, Hey, can I borrow 20 bucks? Can I borrow a hundred bucks? I can't make the house payment this month. Can I make the, can you help me make my house payment? The best way to do that is this, is to say, okay, here's the deal. First of all, they'll probably come to you asking you to loan them the money. Don't do that. Never loan family money. Don't do it. Give it to them. But here's the caveat. You say to them in this instance, you say, okay, here's what's going to happen. I will give you the money this month, but that's it. It's for this month, this month only. And if you take this, we have an understanding. And you can even write it out in a contract to say, this is the only time that you're getting this. It's a gift. Um, it's not a loan. Don't worry. You don't have to pay me back. It is a gift. If you if they decide in that, you know, that they want to pay you back, fine, but they're not going to, most likely, more times than not. So just give them the money. Gift it to them, but let them understand. Because if you give it to them, say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're here. You're in trouble, and you let them motion. If you don't set any standards for it, then guess what? It's going to be really appreciated that first time. Then the next month or three months are going to come along, and they're going to come to you again. And what they're going to do is they're going to expect you to give them the money. So what you're doing is you're you're basically working against your relationship with the very person that you're trying to help. So whenever I started hearing this idea of giving $5 million, I'm thinking that's a lottery ticket. That is a lottery winning. So I thought, what is this actually going to do to these people? Is it really going to help them? In the short term, it might. But will it help them build generational wealth? Will it help them? And, and most of us out there, we can't even fathom $5 million. We think in our minds, a lot of us, that $5 million bucks that's all the money in the world. And a lot of the people that would get this money, you know, look, if I got $5 million, I would be able to live off of it forever. I would not need any more money, okay? But also, I've had some training and some instruction and just some upbringing that would would you know, kind of help me understand how to steward that $5 million. At least I think I would. I might not because I'm a human being, fully fallible, full, fully and completely able to make some of the most boneheaded decisions that anyone can make. I'm fully capable, so, I'm, so I very well may, but 
imagine all of a sudden you put in the hands of someone who has never managed more than 150, 200 bucks at a time. You now give them $5 million. Is that really good for them? Well, here's what I did. The first thing I did is I researched lottery winners because essentially this is winning the lottery. I mean, again, if you're getting a free house, you're getting 5 million bucks, you've won the lottery. So what does that do to people? Well, it turns out that of all the people that have ever won the lottery, one-third of them end up bankrupt. So let's, let's, let's think about this. So if 30% of these people follow that trend of winning this reparations lottery <clears throat> and they go bankrupt, well, then what? You know, because I'm of the opinion that this, this idea, it's better to have had and lost than to have never had at all. I, think, I do not think that that, that, is, that applies in all occasions. Sometimes having had and lost is absolutely abysmal compared to just never having had at all. I think there's, some, there's a happy medium in there. It's like having had and lost, but if you're able to learn through the principles of how you got there, you can, then you can go get it again. This is a one-shot deal. This is one shot. This isn't about learning how to make $100,000 on your own by learning a skill, learning money management, learning how to manage debt, learning how to be a responsible person. This isn't that. This is a one-shot deal. This is taking the things that a lot of other people have learned to make money and going out and getting that and just giving the results, the money the fruit to someone who may or may not in all cases some of the I mean some of this money I mean I guess especially at San Francisco in 2023 you might be giving five million dollars to a black physician or a black attorney very well and, and that's that's a different scenario but you got to believe you're also going to give this to someone who has never managed that much money so what are you doing for them well 30% of the people that win the lottery, and I can't imagine that all poor people win the lottery. Now, we always hear the old cliche that that's what the lottery is. It's the poor, uh, it's the poor man's 401k. Uh, but I know a lot of wealthy people that also play the lottery. So, therefore, when you average it out, if a third of them are going bankrupt, then what's going to happen if that holds in this quote-unquote lottery scenario? What does that do for these people? Are their lives really made better? If they got this massive sugar high, this massive cash infusion. We're looking at it right now. We did this in America during COVID. We gave the, we gave so much, we just rained money on people. And now we're seeing the result of that. A lot of people mismanagement, mismanaged it. It completely and artificially manipulated our economy. So now banks are failing. Uh, uh, inflation is at an all-time high for my lifetime. Interest rates are such a, point, uh, such a point to where people are now, I just heard a statistic that people are more rate sensitive today than they ever have been in the history of home buying. And the reason why is because if you're someone in your 20s, or 30s, and some of them even in the early 40s, you've never seen interest rates this high. You only know interest rates for a house to be two and a half, three percent, four percent. And now when they're getting up to six and a half percent, now I'm old enough to remember, you know, I think the first mortgage on my house was like five and three quarters or six percent. And even then, we were being told by people that had lived through the Carter administration, hey, you, you, 5%, 6% back. I remember paying 18, 19% interest on a house. And so what does that do? That just takes a lot of people out of the economy. So that's what happens when you just pour money on something. The outcomes are rarely universally good. 
Now, it might make you feel good about yourself. It may make you feel good about yourself for a moment. So that's what, and that, again, that's why this is a politician solution. It's here, it's quick, it's in the now, it doesn't cost them anything. There's only upside for the people that are going to be voting for them, and it's going to endear them for a moment, but for long-term success, not so much. It doesn't do that much. So 30% of them go bankrupt. So then I thought, okay, what is another scenario where almost overnight people get a huge windfall of cash? How does that work out? Well, I look to the NFL. A lot of the NFL is full of athletes that come from very low socioeconomic situations. They end up in the NFL, and they all of a sudden have more money than they've ever been able to comprehend in their entire life. And the statistic shows, let me get this right, for many football stars, money goes just as quickly as it comes. According to Sports Illustrated, nearly four out of Five former NFL players either go bankrupt or suffer severe financial distress within two years of retirement. Okay, so we're going to give a lot of people $5 million. What happens if they end up being like an NFL player, which actually had a skill that the market said, you know what, you are special. You're an outlier. You are so gifted as a human being that you should be able to make this money. There's at least some market force saying that it is fair to pay you this kind of money because you are such a rarity. And even those folks that, by the way, most of them at least went to college, even if they didn't go to class that much, you know, look, I'm, I know I was a college athlete and I know that, you know, it, you know, at Stephen F. Austin State University, most of the athletes were required. We had tutoring centers and they, you, you had to, you had to perform academically to play. But a lot of these universities, let me let's be honest, I mean, they're, they're, it's just the minor leagues for the NFL, and they're not doing much score. But at least you're there, and you're also in a community, you're in a university setting where there's a lot of other people that are not athletes, and you get to at least see and hear and be influenced by that environment. What if these folks, some of them, have never experienced that, and all of a sudden you're just going to pour this cash on them? Is that really good? And here's what's crazy, folks. Here's what's crazy. It's, I think this, there was a, the first time this was researched was, it's been decades ago, where it, 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 it tracked happiness in correlation with income. And for years, this has held true. Happiness increases in, for every $10,000 you make up to about $75,000. After $75,000, the amount of money you make doesn't really correlate with any greater happiness. And the reason being is because they think that after $75,000, you can pretty much, you know, the mean in the United States of America uh, of people and even pretty much, I guess, anywhere you live, like, I mean, $75,000 in Manhattan is going to be much, or in San Francisco, going to be much different than $75,000 in Tyler. But all in all, somewhere around $75,000, you can get most of your basic needs met. You can have a house, you can have a car, you can have clothes, you can have the food you need. So therefore, anything over and above your basic needs for living, it's just kind of, you know, it's just extra. It doesn't make you much happier. So you got to ask yourself, are, is this $5 million for, for, these, for these folks that are, you know, they've never had that kind of money before, a lot of them, Again, I maybe there will be again. They're San Francisco uh, people, so maybe 
maybe they already make $5 million a year, and this $5 million will just be something that they'll be able to do whatever with. I don't know, but i got to believe somewhere in the mix there's going to be somebody that's never had this kind of wealth. So are you really, are there, if they're still not going to be any happier, and oh, incidentally, they're also going to guarantee them, I think for 200 years, a, a, a guaranteed base income of $97,500. So in addition to the $5 million payoff, they're also going to give them $97,500. Let me explain something to you. There was once a great quote, I've used this multiple times, that says, the two most addictive things in the world are a paycheck every two weeks, and cocaine, and the first one will kill you. Now, what does that mean? Why, why, why does, what, what's the point in that, that, uh, that old quote? When we don't, when, when, when our basic needs are guaranteed and the decision is, eh, do I really have to get up and get out of bed this morning? I mean, I got the money coming. Do I have to get up? Then we as humans if all of our needs are met, what we'll do is we'll get into this trap to where we will not exercise creativity any longer. We will not work. We will not exercise our mind. And look, a lot of people want to say that, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and go out and work hard and everything, that that's what you're supposed to do to be meaningful in life and that somehow that's just an old trope. Well, here's the deal. Psychologically working and creating for yourself, it is better for you mentally. You will live longer. You will live happier. There's there's statistics and after there's, there's research and study after study that shows this to be the case that when we are productive members of society, we are happier. We're less prone to depression. We're less prone to suicide. We are just overall better for us. So even if it's just a purely selfish endeavor, which sounds contradictory, but you know, uh, Daniel Pink in his book Drive, he talks about this. Employers, for years and years and years, they've tried to use money as the carrot to get employees to do what they want them to do. Well, it turns out that all the scientific research does not match that as a way to motivate people. Giving them more money does not match up with making them happier, feeling more fulfilled, being more confident, and less depressed. Instead, what it is is mastery, autonomy, and purpose. So if you can create an environment where you give people the ability to master something, to be good at something, regardless of what it is, if they can be good at it and feel confident in their abilities, then that is going to check a box on their overall fulfillment. If you can help someone to actually, um, to actually find purpose in what they're doing, where they feel like this is something that is, is, this is bigger than me, the work I'm doing is of greater cause. It, 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 this is something that they've mastered and they find purpose. And then the autonomy aspect of it, it means that I'm trusted. I can work alone. I can, you will leave me alone. You trust me enough. You believe I'm good enough at this. And I'm going to match this up with this, the purpose that I see in this. That is what drives employees to be happier, more fulfilling, and more productive. So that by the same count in life, if you're taking away their need for autonomy, I mean, they're, they're going to be by themselves, but there's not going to be any need for them to go out by themselves and create anything. They just have to sit and collect checks. Mastery, 
I mean, be honest with yourself. When is the last time, even though even though you listen to podcasts like this where I'm constantly talking about build your own birdhouse, go write a book that no one will ever read, go find something you're passionate about, go learn to play the guitar, even if you never planned for anyone else to hear it. If that's something you want to do, do it for you. Exercise your brain. When was the last time you actually just went out and did a thing for the pure enjoyment of learning and mastering? Some of you have, but very few. I guarantee you have done it because you, especially if you're listening to this in the United States, because we tend to only find value in doing those things that will earn us money. So now imagine that you're these folks. You don't have a need to earn money. So therefore, why would you ever do anything? So how are you ever going to feel that fulfillment of mastery, autonomy, and then what is your purpose? Are we honestly going to believe that these folks are going to go, wow, I'm flush with cash now. The right has been wronged. Finally, there is no need for me to be upset with my life circumstances. All doors are now open to me. I've got all these great skills. So now let me find my purpose. I was looking for a purpose before and never could quite find it. But now I've got $5 million in the bank. i got 97.5 coming in every day. I got a free house. Now I can find my life's purpose. Yeah, that's not how it works because generally we find our purpose on our way to surviving. A lot of our purpose comes because we have to go out and earn and we have to start. It forces us into a position of creativity and earning and figuring out what are my gifts and talents that I can apply that people will pay me to do so that then I can, oh, once I figure that out, then I can say to myself, ah, I better master this. If I master this, now I get to do it all by myself. And then I'll find a purpose in that. And that's how our purpose starts to take form and take shape. If you just take all that away, then what do you have? You have a listless human being that wakes up every morning and may not even get out of bed. I don't think that helps anyone. So, I, I, and the thing that's scary right now in America, in particular, probably around the world, is the downside to this, as we've seen. And, and this goes back to, let me, let me read this one thing to you. I found this, um, I found this really telling. And let's see here. Get here. Well, it was the something about that I wanted to read you guys again. I told you I wanted to come back to this. It will it also recommended the creation of a mandatory curriculum that centers black history and culture in the school district and more. Okay. I'm thinking if we decided tomorrow that it would be a really good idea to give every newly licensed driver a, uh, I don't know, a McLaren. We're going to give them all a McLaren. And in addition to that, we're going to fund understanding the history of racing, automotives, and the McLaren brand. We're going to make sure these people really, really appreciate who McLaren was, what, how that company was built, why McLaren has been so important 
to the racing world all these years. Okay, it seems to me that if you're going to give a 16-year-old a McLaren, you might want to first teach them how to drive the freaking thing, how to be safe, how to not hurt themselves and hurt others. Maybe teach them the responsibility that comes with a $250,000 or $300,000 car. Maybe you teach them, hmm, by keeping this $300,000 car, there's some opportunity costs here. I could take that $300,000 and make more money. I could sell the car and invest the money, buy some assets, and then you start teaching them how to steward their money. How do you teach them to turn the McLaren into a $5 million fortune? There's an idea, but according to this, what we're going to do is we're going to give $5 million away to a group of individuals who, just like many members of my own family, just like I probably would have been at one time, you're going to give me something I don't have the instructions for. Let me tell you something. And look, I, I, I hope I'm being Captain Obvious here, but I know some people will say that, I mean, I mean, I can only imagine how people will twist this and take all this out of context, but I think it's worth having the discussion. I know that there's been times in my life where if you gave me $5 million, I would be as likely to know what to do with that $5 million as I would if I were 16 years old receiving a McLaren. Both of them would probably cause me to end up in a very bad crash. So I hope that as this discussion gains steam, because, and look, it's an anchor. Here's what, here's what happens. Here's, here's how America works, especially whenever stuff begins on the West Coast and starts to filter through the rest of the country. This is just the beginning. It's like, it's pretty much known. Here in Texas, here in Texas, if there's some really, really strong, hardcore regulation or a tax increase or something that's going to really expand the role of government, it will begin with the Austin City Council because Austin is the state's capital, right? So they'll try to get it done in the, in the city council. Then they'll take it to the legislature. And if the legislature can't get it done, then they'll take it back to the city council and they'll implement it there. Or generally what will happen is a far, far left or big government program will start in the legislature. They, they, get it, they get it some attention. It can't get passed. So then they will take it down to the city level, and that's really how it works. It usually, it kind of works in conjunction, but generally speaking, the really big, whether it's a cultural shift, a social issue, taxation, regulatory, it will kind of get attention, get some press, and get mentioned in the state house, and then it will get into the city council. We have a much smaller group of people to agree upon it, and then all of a sudden it gets adopted, and as it gets adopted, then it'll start to filter through. Now there's presidents. It'll start to filter through the state of Texas. As the country as a whole, a lot of these things start out in California. What will happen is we'll, we'll, they'll announce some just really dramatic thing like giving $5 million in reparations to San Franciscans of black descent, knowing it's going to get some attention, it's going to get people talking about it. It's kind of like it's, a, it's the anchor. Right? It's like whenever you're trying to sell a car and you, you say you price it really high at first to get the anchor. Okay, you really want fifty thousand, but you price the thing at sixty-five thousand dollars. So that the person you're negotiating with, whenever you, if they can get you to fifty-five and you really wanted 
50 for it to begin with, but you quoted 65, then all of a sudden the 55 doesn't sound too bad to them, and you're $5,000 over what your baseline was. Tracking, okay, that's how politics works. That's why right now President Biden has a $7 trillion budget he's proposing. He knows he's not going to get $7 trillion, but he's going to anchor. He's going to say, okay, American people, I'm, and he's going to say to his constituency, I'm trying to get $7 trillion to do these things I want. And knowing that if he can get $6 trillion, it's still the most massive budget that the world has ever seen. So it's an anchor. That's what's happening in San Francisco. Okay, I don't think that this is going to happen, but there's some form of it that's going to happen, probably, at least at local levels, county levels, whatever the case may be. So therefore, if that's the case, if we can see that coming, this isn't rocket science, folks. There's nothing new under the sun. This is how, the, this is how policy works. If this is what's going to happen, I think it's at least worth asking, are we actually going to be helping these folks? Or are we only going to give them a temporary sugar high where the hate is still in their heart, the bitterness is still in their heart, the victimhood is still in their heart, they just got to live real like ballers for a little while, and then all of it's gone? Because here's the deal. If you were to take, there's a quote that says, if you were to take all the money in the world and spread it out equally, eventually it would most likely end up in the hands that it was taken from to begin with. Do you know why? It's because those hands knew how to make it in the first place. Not universally. Some of them inherited it, but even if they inherited it, and by the way, a lot of people that are trust fund babies, look around at them. They're not, by and large, the happiest people on earth. I've known a lot of these folks. I know one right now. I am watching in real time a trust fund baby. If he had never got out of bed after the age of 25, his life was set. And I can tell you, this individual right now, who shall remain nameless, has watched his family implode, both his personal family, his wife and his children want nothing to do with him. His own father and mother want nothing to do with him. He's a miserable wretch. And he has everything. So he's got the money. Money does not solve all the problems. And that's what I want this to be about. It's not about whether reparations are right or wrong. I'm not getting into that conversation today. What I'm trying to talk about and what I hope somebody that has a lot more power and a lot more influence than me will talk about is, is this really the best strategy? If we're, if we're just going to throw out, I mean, you know, hey, let's all just, let's understand one another better. And we've tried all that. I mean, I just, bottom line is, I mean, I, it's just weird that we're here in 2023. You know, as, as someone who grew up in Texas, my friend group was interracial. My first college roommate was one of my buddies I played football with from high school that was uh, that is a black guy. You know, I grew up in a time where we just, we got along. And then my daughters there, they came through school and they learned the N-word from a Lil Wayne song because they love hip-hop and it just, not to say that everything was perfect and rosy everywhere in the world. I, I know I'm just a small microcosm of a macro issue, but to be in a place in 2023 where things are at least, I don't know, there's there's so many people acting as though things are so bad, which I don't think they are. I think that, you know, if you look at how you live your real life with your, you know, blacks and whites how and, and Hispanics, how just people of all color, how we interact on a daily basis with one another, it's so far removed from what we see in the news. 
And so I don't know why we don't go look at that, go look at reality and go look at small little Petri dishes, if you will, of society being states and cities and go, how are these folks all getting along so well? I mean, look, they live amongst one another. They, they work together. They have uh, similar jobs. Why wouldn't we go Whatever it is that's making that happen, why would we do more of that? Why don't we research that instead of just the typical political response? Let's go grab a bunch of money and throw at it. That'll make everything better. Yeah, I don't think so. Never has. Don't think it ever will. All right, folks. Well, that's it. And, hey, for those of you who don't have $5 bucks and there's no one fighting for you to be getting a check for five million bucks, be glad, be thankful that you're left with your faculties, your mind, and you get to go out and be creative. It, sometimes it sucks. I get, I've been there. I've, I've been unemployed. I have had two children that I was like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to keep a roof over their head. I mean, as a, as a, as an entrepreneur, there have been those moments where I was scared to death financially. I get it. I don't come from money. I don't complain at all. I've had a great freaking life. But I'm and, and I'm thankful for that. My father was very hard on me financially. Didn't didn't give me I remember one time I was going with a church group to a football game and I brought my dad a bunch of coins I had saved and asked him to change them. And his response was, No, keep your change here. He gave me five bucks. Sent me to the football game with $5. Would, wasn't even enough to cover the ticket to the football game. Had to borrow that from a friend. Had enough to buy some nachos at the game. Yeah, it's a small, you know, it's not a hardship. For God's sake, it's not a hardship. But I look back on it, I'm like, I'm glad, I'm glad you did. When I paid off my first business that I bought early, leveraged myself to the hilt. <laughs> leveraged myself to the hilt. Paid off already. One of the first phone calls I made was to my dad to tell him and to thank him for being hard on me, to teach me the value. So, so what I'm saying is don't let this, what's happening, be make you bitter because, look, it is. It's it's one group getting something that, you know, and the, I'm telling you, there's a we hear about the privilege and all that, and there's some people in some circumstances. You know, I think uh, Theo Vaughn, his claim to fame was his stand-up deal where he talks about growing up as a really, really poor white guy in a minority community, and his white privilege didn't seem to do him much good. Um, but the bottom line is just instead of focusing on all that, just find happiness within yourself if you've got a roof over your head, if you've got good health, if you're creative, if you've got a loving family, focus, focus on that. Say thank you, thank you, thank you. Focus on gratitude. Focus on helping somebody else. And then to the political leaders out there, hey, please, for God's sake, I know you won't. I know this is a complete moot point to any of you. But please take the time to ask yourself, is this really right for the people we're trying to help? Or are we only causing more problems? All right, folks, I hope you have a great weekend. That is the first episode of Right On, Right On San Francisco Reparations. That's weird. Didn't think that'd be the first one. And I do hope that you will have the best Friday ever. Hey, if you haven't done it yet, please go out and subscribe to the Vitruvian Letter. That's my weekly newsletter where I encapsulate all the things I'm trying to do to improve always and always. I hope you will do that. Until we meet again, I am out.